Some of you will remember that early one Friday morning a few years ago, a street musician took a spot by a trash can in the Lanfod Plaza metro station in Washington, D.C. He was nondescript, youngish, jeans, baseball cap. He took out his violin and threw a few dollars in the case so people would get the point. For the next 43 minutes, he played six classical pieces while over a thousand people passed by on their way to work. Only seven people stopped. 27 people dropped change in the violin case, mostly on the run. So that morning, if you count the $20 bill dropped by the one person who recognized him, Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians in the world, made $59 for a 43-minute concert on his $3.5 million Stradivarius. Why didn't people recognize Bell? They would have recognized him at Carnegie Hall or at Kennedy Center. They would have recognized him if they'd paid $200 for a ticket. But playing for free in a metro station isn't what a world-famous violinist does. It just wasn't what they were expecting. Our Matthew passage this morning raises the question, how do you recognize the ones sent from God to save God's people and God's world? How do you recognize the Messiah? We meet John the Baptist, whom we probably remember best, out in the wilderness by the Jordan River, preaching fire and brimstone and baptizing those who are willing. In chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist says the Messiah will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire, separating the wheat from the chaff, and woe to you if you happen to be the chaff. Jesus comes to be baptized by him, and John recognizes him. He says that Jesus should be baptizing him instead. But now John is in prison, where he's had some time to think about it, and he's not sure Jesus fits the mold. I like Frederick Beekner's take on John's doubts. Where John ate locusts and honey in the wilderness with the church crowd, Jesus ate what he felt like in Jerusalem with as sleazy a bunch as you could expect to find. Where John crossed to the other side of the street if he saw any sinners heading his way, Jesus seems to have preferred their company to the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Stewardship Committee, and the World Council of Churches all rolled into one. Where John baptized, Jesus healed. Are you the one, asks John? Are you the one? And his question implies more questions. If you're the one who is to come, just when will you be starting to separate the wheat from the chaff? When exactly will that Roman puppet and tyrant Herod be brought down from his throne? When will you proclaim release to the captive? If you, Jesus, are the one who is to come, what am I, John, doing in prison? Here we are this morning in the third week of Advent, just ten days from Christmas. By this time, most of us have bought our trees, decorated our houses, been to at least one holiday party, and maybe even had a good jump on our Christmas shopping. You might think the lectionary would give us angels or something to get us into the Christmas spirit, but instead we get John the Baptist and his doubts. John the Baptist and his disappointment. 
you aren't who I, I was expecting. You don't look like the Messiah. But the thing is, if John could ask such things, we can too. If you are the one who is to come, why is my friend dying of cancer? Why does every generation seem to need to go to war? Why are so many kids abused? Why are there still people all over the world, like John the Baptist, unjustly held in prisons? How many of you have friends who have asked you, how can you believe in a just, merciful, all-powerful God when the world is such a mess? If God exists and if Jesus is as important as you claim, shouldn't things be better by now? Why are there still diseases, wars, earthquakes? Wouldn't the Messiah clean up this mess? How many of you have asked these kinds of questions, either out loud or in the quiet of your hearts? Aren't we all, even here in the sanctuary, still waiting for the fulfillment of Christmas, the Christmas promise? I mean, isn't it precisely what is so wonderful about Christmas, the promises of peace and peace on earth and goodwill to all, that is also so difficult about Christmas, as the headlines and sometimes even our own lives regularly make it clear that peace and goodwill seem as scarce today as they were just a few months or years or millennia ago. Jesus gives us a two-part answer to these questions. Quoting our Hebrew scripture passage from this morning and, the, and some other verses from Isaiah, he says to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers have been cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. 20th century theologian Paul Tillich wrote, We want only to show you something we have seen and to tell you something we have heard, that here and there in the world, and now and then in ourselves, is seen a new creation. Jesus is saying that more is going on than John has noticed. Yes, John is still in prison, but Jesus is saying, listen, look, God is at work here, maybe not in the unquenchable fire that you are expecting, but at work just the same, here and there in the world, and now and then in ourselves. Here and there in the world, and now and then in ourselves, we see the new creation. This points to the second part of Jesus' answer. Jesus praises John. No one is greater than John the Baptist, he says, but then he contradicts this. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What he's saying is that as important as John is, the kingdom, that is the way the world would look if we live as though God is the ruler of our hearts and minds, the kingdom is of a different order, a new order. That new creation that Tillich and the Apostle Paul wrote about. Jesus is both the fulfillment of Israel's historical hopes expressed in Isaiah and something altogether different, something no one was expecting. When asked by his disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus introduces them to a child. No one expected that. 
when being arrested in Gethsemane, and one of his friends pulls a sword, Jesus says, put that sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But Jesus does not appeal to his father for legions of angels. He goes quietly with his accusers because the kingdom of God is where power is made great in vulnerable love, where it's the peacemakers that are blessed and the meek will inherit the earth. No one expected that. The Messiah is the one who is in complete solidarity with those who are in need, with the poor and the lame and the outcasts, and all the others who can boast of nothing except their dependence on God's grace and mercy and protection. The Messiah is not the one who lays waste God's enemies, but the one who heals, restores, feeds people, welcomes them, frees them, gives them life. No one was expecting that. This means a couple of things. First, Jesus hasn't fixed everything. We don't have any better answer for our non-Christian friends than, you're right, the world is still a mess. We aren't claiming everything is all better since the advent of Jesus as God with us. Only that now we have a clearer idea of how to spot the new creation, a concrete hope for its fulfillment, and a fervent prayer for the present time. Come, Lord Jesus. But it also means something bigger. When Jesus is talking about the least in the kingdom, the ones greater than John the Baptist, he's talking about us. The only example of power Jesus will give us, serving, feeding, giving himself away, is the same power that we have. It is because of that power that here and there in the world and now and then in ourselves is seen a new creation. Our Advent theme this year is Be Still and Know. It is not just a call to step back from the frenzy of the Christmas rush, although indeed it is that. It is also a call to step back and see what the Advent of God, what the coming of God with us really looks like and how we are an ongoing part of it. I know people who don't want to have anything to do with a God who doesn't solve all the world's problems in a blinding flash of light or with fiery judgment. But what we celebrate this season, the coming of God into our world, this world, the real human world, is more along the lines of what Thich Nhat Hanh has said. The miracle is not to walk on water, but on the earth. Once again, I find myself wishing we had a way to show you a video here in the sanctuary. I watched a trailer this week for a documentary called Sweet Dreams. I want you to see it so much that I've set it up so that you can see it after worship if you want in coffee hour in the fireside room. In Rwanda... European colonial powers played one tribe against another in a divide-and-conquer strategy, and that worked to rule the country, but it in, resulted in one of the worst genocides in history. After all the suffering, where neighbors killed neighbors and no family was left unscarred, Rwandan women turned to their tradition, but first they turned the tradition around. 
women had been forbidden to drum. But when someone asked why, they were told it was because the drums were too heavy for women to carry. So women of both warring tribes formed an all-women drumming troupe and learned how to cooperate and live together through drumming practice. This drumming troupe tours Rwanda and internationally, and on a trip to New York City, the drum troupe leader met some women who run an organic, artisanal ice cream shop. The drum leader decided that she wanted to open an ice cream shop in Rwanda with her fellow drummers. The shop is to be named Nzozi Nziza, which means sweet dreams. Now, in this part of Rwanda, even people who have heard of ice cream mostly haven't tasted it. There, are, there were a lot of obstacles to overcome. Machines needed to be bought and set up. The staff needed to learn how to work the machines. But the women make it work, reaching across cultures, across tribal barriers, and working together to help each other to rebuild their torn world and to heal. They take handcrafted artisanal ice cream and use it to make handcrafted grassroots peace. In a book called Artisan Peacemakers, the authors say that this grassroots artisan peacemaking is not unique. An Anglican priest working with Tamil and Sinhalese farmers Catholic and Protestant homemakers in Northern Ireland, a Lutheran youth worker dealing with gangs in Brooklyn. From our own congregation, ordinary people travel to Afghanistan to bring a friendly human face and a heart willing to listen to people who think that all Americans hate Muslims. Others travel to Israel-Palestine to express solidarity with people whose plight has been all but invisible. And day by day, it is becoming less and less easy for the world to ignore it. These are not high-profile people. These are not diplomatic engineers of peace processes. They are grassroots artisans of peace. These are instances of small handcrafted peace accords, and my friends, I'm not so sure they are not the only peace accords that actually work. They transform the world from the bottom up which is what Barbara Brown Taylor calls the ultimate trickle-up effect. She writes, Our leaders can be servants, and the best ones will be, but we must never surrender our power to the powerful. The power God has given us is the strongest stuff in the world, the power to serve, the power to reconcile and forgive, the power to make peace, the power to heal, the power of vulnerable love. Francis B. Maloney writes, Christians are not preparing for the messianic time. They belong to it. Brothers and sisters, be still and know this Advent, that each of you, each of us, in our own small corner of the world, has been given the power to transform the world from the bottom up. In the classroom, the factory, the retail store, the commuter lane, in the doctor's examining room, the accountant's office, the lawyer's office, at the bedside of a friend, a 
the side of the grieving, in the shelter in Duncan Hall on Friday nights, in our marriages and as parents, in Jesus' footsteps, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are artisans of the new creation. Maybe that isn't what you are expecting the Messiah to look like. But here and there in the world, and now and then in ourselves, we see the new creation. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.